Hello, I'm Justin Wheeler, and welcome to this episode of Nonstop Nonprofit. WTF is blockchain. Why should I care about crypto donations as a nonprofit? Today's conversation with Ann Connolly, TED speaker and blockchain faculty at Singularity University, dives into the relationship between this technology and the scalability of your impact as a nonprofit. Blockchain just might be the solution your nonprofit is looking for to solve the world's biggest problems. Let's dive in. The best thing that we can do is just raise as much money as possible and then give it to the people around the world. We set out to raise $1,000 to help this person, um, but we had no idea how to fundraise. Then you're doing it wrong. Okay. That is unacceptable and that is not the way to run a board. Who is this girl and what's the thought process when you're like, do I include a nickel? And it snowballs like any peer-to-peer campaign. The more people that view this content, the further and further it grows. The community raised $55 million in 2019. The more nonprofits can give their donor base that experience of the impact that's being made on the ground level, there's nothing else you have to give someone. This is Nonstop Nonprofit. Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining this episode of Nonstop Nonprofit. Today we have a exciting guest joining to talk about blockchain and cryptocurrency and uh, especially as it relates to the nonprofit sector. And so, and thank you so much for joining us for today's conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Before we dive into some of the more tactical questions. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and and what got you interested in crypto. Yeah, absolutely. So I, my first career, as I call it, was in humanitarian aid. So I spent 10 years on and off working with international aid organizations, notably Doctors Without Borders. Um, I had worked with them in DR Congo and Central African Republic and some of their medical humanitarian work. And it was around, would have been 2010, I guess, that I was working in Central Africa. And At that point in time, we had projects in some of the most remote places on the continent. And, you know, in order to be able to pay our staff in these places, I would have to carry knapsacks full of money through jungles and war zones and military checkpoints to be able to pay our teams in cash. And so that was kind of the beginning of my career was was this very boots on the ground financial management of, of these international aid projects. And as I went through my career, came home, learned about Bitcoin and just realized this technology, you know, would ensure that no one ever had to carry knapsacks full of money in dangerous places ever again. And from there, just learned about, you know, the other properties of Bitcoin that make it so incredible for people living in developing countries, but then onwards and upwards to blockchain and decentralization, and how that's actually going to enable us to not only improve society, but completely redesign it from the ground up if we wanted to. And so I um, moved away from the humanitarian space, got more into the crypto space. I've had a couple startups in and around uh, applications for social impact and nonprofits. And uh, now I do a lot of teaching around that space um, with Singularity University. So around around where uh, around crypto today, who are you teaching, and what are the things that you're you're teaching them? So I teach a lot of different sectors. I mean, with um, Singularity University, I'm teaching a lot of the world's innovators, people with 
really expansive adaptive minds who want to learn about all the latest technology and apply it to whatever they're doing and uh, but one of my passions is definitely ensuring that there's inclusion in education and so uh, right now i'm working on a project it's a graphic novel all about blockchain with an artist out of kenya named chief niamwea and he's super talented and so we're essentially using the graphic novel or comic books to, you know, have a very exciting and interesting way for youth to learn about what is kind of a complex technology. So we're going to push that book out and have it be free to access early next year. So we're pretty excited about that. That's awesome. I can't wait to, can't wait to see that. So do you find that when uh, teaching young people about crypto that there's, there's a, a big gap between understanding what it is and how, how to apply it? Um, and is that why the, is that what initially caused the, the, uh, this concept of this graphic novel to, to be produced was, was for that educational gap that exists today, or uh, is there any other, anything else specific that you think it could also serve? I think part of the early days of, of crypto found, I found that the education was really education by tech people for tech people. Hmm. And so there wasn't really this acknowledgement that, you know, not everybody wanted to learn about hash rates or block sizes or, you know, these complex backend technical processes. They wanted to know how the technology was going to change their lives. And so it was really about looking at approaching, you know, the global mindset of, you know, how do you share with people what their community could look like if they learned about blockchain, began to develop applications, and then implemented them in their world. And so that was sort of the background about it is, you know, how do you get people to believe in the future vision of the, the potential of this technology so that they can start to learn more about, you know, the practicalities of making that happen? Got it. That makes sense. I think it was in your TED Talk, you said something uh, to the effect that exponential technologies can solve problems that impact over a billion people. I'd love if you could expand upon that, what you mean. Are you talking specifically to like crypto or blockchain technology or technology in general? Would love to hear and you unpack that a little bit more if you can. Yeah, no problem. So essentially the way to look at it is when you look at many nonprofits today, they're, they're taking a problem out there in the world and every year they make it 10% better. You know, it's mm. this very marginal increase on, on improving that problem. And that's great. But the problems that we're dealing with today, when you look at COVID, when you look at climate change, these problems are enormous and 10% improvement is just not good enough to actually solve the problem. And so what we do at Singularity University and where this whole kind of mantra comes from is getting people to think more in a 10x instead of a 10%. So if I said to you, you know, how would you make the room you're sitting in better? Most people might say, well, I'd have a more comfortable chair or there'd be more light. But if I said, how would you make the room 10 times better? The type of thinking that you use to come up with solutions is totally different. You'd say, well, maybe there would be a hologram of my, my friend who can't be here today beside me, or maybe it would be inside a helicopter and I could fly this room anywhere in the world. And so it's all about how do you take that mindset and then use technology to be able to scale the applications that you're working on. So for example, when you look at Moore's law is, is the classic example where, you know, uh, computing power, it doubles about every 18 months. And so if you're building an application to solve a problem using today's technology, you know, that's, that's fine. You'll get that 10% improvement that you're looking for. But if you build an application or come up with an idea that uses the technology that you know you're going to have five years from now, 
once you hit that point in five years, your, your scale and your impact will rise exponentially. And so you'll be able to impact so many more people or, you know, create so much more change because you've been able to scale it at a pace that normally wouldn't be possible if you're using kind of that 10% type thinking. Sure. And I, I imagine this sort of thinking would also need to flip the, the conversation of you know, overhead ratios on it on its head, because if you're talking about scaling impact, you know, in five years from now, instead of this year, I think that's, that's where a lot of nonprofits kind of like make this decision for 10% versus 100 plus percent, you know, growth is the cost of investment to scale and grow is not necessarily or usually realized in like that first year of, of the work that you put in. And so that year look expensive compared to your maybe the actual outcomes. And so you need to have like a long term mindset. And I think that's why we, we see so many nonprofits kind of, you know, teeter tottering between the two and most deciding on the incremental sort of growth and impact uh, wins at their at their organizations. Yeah, I mean, this 80 20 concept is it's such a broken concept. And it's very unfortunately become a bit of a mantra in the nonprofit space when really like if you were looking at a highly successful startup, let's say, they wouldn't be making money at all for the first, you know, five or 10 years, they would be investing in all the infrastructure that they need to then when that moment hits scale exponentially and create this infinite levels of, of impact and change. And so I think that's a bit of a, a mindset that I'd love to see in the nonprofit space where if you have a really amazing concept, you know what, put 100% of your money into establishing you know, and building what that's going to be for the first couple of years. And then what you're going to see is that your ratio will go to, you know, 99 to one after that, where, you know, you're only spending 1% on administration because of the structure of your project. Um, and that, you know, the, how you've set it up for, for scale. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. In, um, uh, so you also talked about, and you, you touched on this a little bit in sharing a little bit more about your background uh, as it relates to blockchain, but something that, that was interesting and it was an early use case. I think this was the, the, the talk was several years ago was just in, in terms of, of how you leveraged uh, crypto for, you know, helping pay people working in, in the field. And this was a, a same pain point that I had uh, when I was working at Liberty in North Korea, we, we had individuals working in several different countries uh, and, and oftentimes had to be working in confidentiality. And so getting them paid was never an easy task. And so I love how, you know, that was something that initially it sounds like got you thinking about blockchain, thinking about about crypto, but beyond beyond that, like what are some other strong use cases that you that you would say nonprofits should be looking and exploring into as as they explore this whole new world of of crypto? Right off the bat, I think you need to look at crypto donations as a starting point. I mean, the reality is this is a whole new asset class. So if you think about the way a nonprofit might feel about stock donations back when charities weren't accepting those, it would have been a bit of a scary thing to think about. Yeah. Maybe not all the fundraisers would have understood that. That's where we're at with crypto. But what's neat about crypto is it brings in this whole new set of donors that you've never had before. This is not your, your traditional major donor that you're getting a new set of money from. It's a whole new set of donors, which is sort of this unprecedented turning point in the nonprofit sector that we haven't had before. But the crypto donation element is really just the very, very beginning. Because when you start to look at 
blockchain technology um, and its properties and its ability to impact nonprofit, you can get into all kinds of other things. So you can look at impact tracking, you can look at supply chain improvements, you can look at totally new governance models. Um, but I think the thing that makes me most excited about this technology is not so much that it's going to help nonprofits be better at what they're doing, but it's actually redesigning the underlying systems that our society is built on to eliminate a lot of the problems that nonprofits are treating the symptoms of. You know, so we look at things like poverty and, and inequality and these types of issues, freedom for sure, you know, and in a lot of countries that have oppressive governments, blockchain is making an impact on the underlying issues there as opposed to the treating the symptoms. And so my hope is that, you know, as we move forward with this technology, it's actually going to solve some of the underlying problems that we see. Yeah, like one one sort of like example that I think of specifically in, in terms of decentralizing, uh, in, in, in this case, currency, let's say, when when I was back at, at Liberty North Korea, you know, there was this uh, in 2010, there, the North Korean government did a currency revaluation. Uh, so the North Korean people like, you know, the markets don't aren't allowed to exist. So there's these black markets and hundreds of thousands of people were creating wealth for themselves. Um, and wealth is is definitely gives you more sort of, you know, power and it, it allows you to start pushing back against the government. And the North Korean government saw this happening. So they dropped a bunch of zeros from their currency and eliminated people's wealth overnight. And it was one of the first times uh, in North Korea where there was actually public protests and the North Korean government uh, ended up executing their minister of, of finance and said it was his it was no it was his decision blah 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 but in a in in a situation like that this is where blockchain is really interesting right because if everyone is trading uh, using a different currency in this case bitcoin uh, instead of the local North Korean won could have been a very different outcome what other interesting uh, examples have you seen as maybe as it even relates to freedom uh, in in a, a oppressive regime governments where blockchain has has played a, p a pretty pivotal role in the decentralization of information or whatever it might be. Absolutely. Like your example is, is amazing. And we've seen a similar thing in Venezuela, of course, like what started fundamentally is a financial crisis where this mismanagement of the national financial system actually turned into a humanitarian emergency where people were starving because they couldn't afford food and their life savings went up in smoke. And I think there's this element of currency where people like you and I living in North America, we, we trust in our financial system, but we're watching the American government in particular printing money like crazy right now. And so this idea that our life savings might go up in smoke is actually not really that far fetched. And so, you know, for us, that's sort of one angle. But when you get into more oppressive regimes, when you look at say protesters in all kinds of places like uh, Bahrain, Pakistan, we've seen in India in a number of locations where the government will actually turn off social media or turn off the internet so that protesters can't complain about government or can't organize. Blockchain can enable them to have either secret messaging systems or you know, well-encrypted messaging systems or something that's really cool that I love called a blockchain-based mesh network. So if let's say the internet uh, gets shut off in a country where you're protesting, but you need to get information out to the BBC about human rights abuses, you can actually send messages to and through the cell phones of all the people around you until it reaches the phone of someone who has a connection, maybe through a satellite connection or something like that to get the information out. So what's happening is this technology is essentially enabling people to have you know, the freedom of speech and the freedom of assembly that 
they are entitled to and can't be oppressed in the same way behind these kind of closed doors of, of mm. these governments in a way that's never been possible before, which is incredible. So in, in many ways, um, blockchain is the technology and the solution to a lot of the problems nonprofits have been fighting for. Uh, in, in the case that you mentioned, you know, free speech, a government can easily, you know, take down the internet or, you know, the media, for in instance, but this mesh network run on blockchain is super fascinating, something the government cannot control. And a lot of times we, we spend time trying to solve the problem from the top up, right? Like try, whether it's, it's political reform, whatever it might be, whereas technology may be able to help escalate uh, and move things along a little bit uh, faster. So that's, that is, that's super fascinating. So let's talk a little bit more about um, donations, uh, crypto donations. I think this is this is something that is starting to pick up a little bit, at least here in the United States. We're starting to see more nonprofits, you know, um, offer this as a way. Uh, it's something early on. We uh, so fundraise is a technology platform that's helping power online fundraising and, and donor management. Uh, and we've we've always made crypto a part of our our payment flow. Um, so and we've seen you know super interesting things happen through that giving method, but why are so few nonprofits still adopting this and using it? I, know, I love the comparison to, to stock donations, right? Back when that first hit the market, that was like, what is anyone going to give stock? But what, what, is, what is preventing organizations from using crypto today? The biggest barriers right up front are just knowledge and information. You know, it's if most cryptocurrency programs that have been implemented in the early days, especially were just done so because someone on staff had a special knowledge and made it happen. You know, I know uh, for myself, I launched a program at an organization called Dignitas, which was when did I launch that? 2013 or 2014, I think. And it, it was just because I was really interested in crypto. And so I think to get people over that barrier, we need more education within the nonprofit sector to tell them, you know, what is this? How does it work? And make people more comfortable with the technology and understand that there's this huge pot of donors that is just waiting to be tapped into. But there's a number of organizations out there that are already doing it, really reputable ones. You've got Red Cross, Save the Children, Wikipedia, United Way. So this is, it's really any organization that isn't doing this right now is very quickly becoming uh, a, a laggard in terms of, <laughs> you know, adopting this, this new technology. Well, yeah, you, you mentioned that there is, you know, introduces a whole new asset class to a nonprofit organization. Can you help us unpack that a little bit? Like is, do people who donate with crypto, do they look the same in, in, in regards to, or like, is it, is it hard to pinpoint who the market is for, for crypto donors? And so just giving that option, you know, helps ex increase adoption on, on your website. What, what does this asset class look like and how can a nonprofit find them or market to them or, you know, engage? This group of donors is totally different from your traditional major donor. One of the key things about crypto is because it is, you know, uh, this freedom technology and anyone can get involved and anyone can learn how to use it. In the early days, a lot of really young not rich, but very savvy individuals got into it and have now made, you know, millions of dollars. And so what you see in, in a donor is that they don't typically fit the, you know, 60 year old female retiree necessarily. They, you know, they're, they're dynamic, they're active. They want to build things that are changing the world, but they want to do it differently. And, you know, you find them again in very different places. They're not at the gala fundraiser that you're hosting. They're not interested in that. They're interested in very different things, meetups and 
conferences with other people who are interested in in the same you know technical ap aspects of this cryptocurrency world and so it's really about rethinking your strategy for how you would go after them so it's about looking for them in different places looking for them online in different forums and just making sure that they know that you're there because they're looking for you and they're looking for for organizations that believe in the vision that they believe in which is that you know cryptocurrency and blockchain will create this change that we're all trying to see so to get um a little bit more technical on on, on that point so when when someone uh, makes a crypto donation uh, is is it your recommendation that they convert that immediately to whatever currency they're you know they're they're raising in or should bitcoins be held by nonprofit organizations uh, and allow allow them to potentially you know gain in value over time what what are your thoughts or what are you seeing nonprofits do in that regard most nonprofits i'm seeing are taking the really like hyper safe route and doing an instant conversion the same way most might do with a, you know a stock that they right. receive but i think there's absolutely massive potential for organizations to essentially pre-program smart contracts that would say you know we're going to hold on to this ether that's been donated and once it goes up 20% we're going to sell it. Or if it goes down 50%, we're going to sell it because that's the range that we're willing to work within. And, you know, massive potential to set up a crypto endowment funds to really actually make money in a different way. And I, and I think that's something we need to be looking at as nonprofits is how can you look at different revenue structures and revenue sources that aren't necessarily donations? Or what can you do with those donations once you get them to turn them into, you know, 10x let's say right. and be able to get so much more out of each donation that you get one of the one of the other sort of like obstacles to adoption that i've that i've experienced with nonprofits is because and it's it's similar in in that like why so many nonprofits don't use facebook for fundraising is they don't get data on the individual giving which is the whole point of for the most part you know uh, crypto donating bitcoins and whatnot is the individual's a lot of times like to remain anonymous and want to remain anonymous, especially for more uh, of the like human rights focused organizations. That's what, that's what we've seen. Is there anything that you would, you would say there, should there be a trade-off? Should we start to think about this, this group of people very differently than the way we cultivate our existing donors today? What, what are your high level thoughts around, around that? The cryptocurrency community is very privacy conscious and very concerned about, you know, where their data goes, who it's being sold to. And so I think it's reasonable to expect that they're not going to want to sign up for everything. They're not going to want to necessarily hand over their information. And so the way to look at that is not so much about like, oh, darn, we're not getting their data, but more so how do you engage with this community in a whole new way? It's about rethinking how you operate not versus trying to get them to fit into your box. And then maybe that that will open up a broader conversation about what are we actually doing with our, our donor data right now? Is that really acceptable to be doing that with people's personal information or should we be kind of clamping down on that and seeing that as, you know, one of our values is protecting privacy uh, and ensuring, you know, we're not taking too much data. So I think it's really more about rethinking how nonprofits operate today rather than trying to get, you know, this new set of donors to fit into a box they're not going to want to fit into. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Makes sense. Maybe taking one step back, I want to go back to this this whole like concept of blockchain and freedom. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, there can be an argument made for technology really invading individuals' privacy and making, you know, make, feeling less restrictive or more restrictive because of, of a lot of the uh, issues that we've seen over the last several years. And you talked a lot about this in, in your TED Talk, the, the relationship between blockchain and freedom. 
and was wondering if you can maybe unpack that a little bit more because that's that's super fascinating and I think it's another sort of way to understand this technology and how it could be helpful for a nonprofit. When, when you think about our society today, almost everything we do, every transaction we make, every interaction we have is uses some sort of centralized third party to make that happen. So if I want to send money overseas, there's a couple of banks in between, there's a government, but that extends like far beyond money. And so when you look at something like say identity, like I think that I own my identity, but I really don't. My identity is given to me by the Canadian government in my case or whatever government you are part of. And so, you know, for me that that works pretty well. The Canadian government's relatively stable, but in a lot of countries there are many oppressive governments that will either, you know, remove your identity or, you know, not grant you one in the first place and so that would inhibit your ability to flee. So a couple mm. of recent examples, the Chinese government has been removing identities from the Uyghur Muslims because they don't want them to be able to flee. Uh, there's a lot of cases with refugees where you know, even if they could get an identity from their government, they can't because they've fled from, you know, their war-torn town, which has been bombed out, so they can't go back and get it. And that really restricts their freedom from freedom of movement, freedom of access to subsequent services, things like healthcare or, or social services. And so with blockchain, blockchain actually enables individuals to be self-sovereign or to, to own their own identity. And that enables them to build up an identity over time. So if you think about it, let's say I'm born and my parents claim on blockchain that, yep, this is Ann Connolly, she's our child. And then every person that I meet verifies the fact that, yep, this is Ann Connolly, I attest to that. And I can add all kinds of other proof to that identity and I can build it and grow it over time. And nobody can take that away from me if they don't like what I'm doing or where I'm going. It's mine. It belongs to me. And so the same thing applies to things like data. You know, as we were talking about, you know, Facebook is taking all our data. They're making money off of it. With blockchain, I own that data and I have the right to sell it, rent it, trade it, whatever I want to do. So a good example of where this might really matter is when you look at like genetics. So if you've done your 23andMe, you've now handed over your genetic information to that company. They own it. They can sell it. They can do what they want. And that can actually be scary if they start to do things like work with, you know, law enforcement in negative ways, or if you've got a government that, say, is trying to make a track of, of you know, anyone who has a particular type of heritage, so they can make a list and do things with that. But if you, for example, had your genetic, genetic data on a blockchain, you would be able to open up snippets of that to, say, a researcher who wanted to do research around cancer or, you know, one around Alzheimer's or something like that. But most importantly is you could actually revoke access to your DNA information. Mm. So it's you that's in control, which is really the big piece is, is this shift from having people's freedom and people's assets being owned and managed by centralized parties like governments or corporations and having them decentralized back to the individuals that should own them. Do you do you see a case uh, or do you see, um, I guess, more progress um, being made where some of these big tech companies like Facebook would actually start to build their platform on blockchain and, and give people back? Or do you feel like that's so outside their business model, it, it's, it's impossible to actually... Uh, achieve that level of, uh, of of confidence and that they would do something like that? I mean, it depends on the company. We've seen uh, Jack Dorsey from Twitter. He's in Twitter and Square. He's all over Bitcoin. He's looking at, you know, Bitcoin applications within his companies. Facebook is taking the opposite approach. You know, recently they 
launched a, a quote unquote cryptocurrency called Libra that really would only operate within its walled garden of Facebook and Instagram and uh, Messenger and WhatsApp. And that to me is not, it's not the mentality. It's not the ethos of what cryptocurrency is about. It's not saying like, Hey, you can only use this within our products. And then we're going to take all the data associated with your transactions and sell it or hand it over to oppressive governments or what have you. And so I think there's, we really need to be vigilant as cryptocurrencies gain traction is looking at, you know, if a government launches their own cryptocurrency or a corporation launches a cryptocurrency, is it really this free decentralized cryptocurrency like Bitcoin is? And in most cases, it's definitely not. And the consequences of that can be very serious. So if you can imagine you know, a woman in Saudi Arabia wants to make a donation to a women's rights organization. She does that, you know, through the Facebook cryptocurrency. And then the government subpoenas Facebook for the information and she gets jailed or killed for, you know, trying to support women's rights. That's the real danger of those types of crypto versus Bitcoin, where she can make that donation and do it, you know, for essentially for free and do it without having anyone being able to track it back to her identity. Got it. So, and that, and that seems like that's the real key differentiator between, maybe for lack of better words, like a, the Trojan horse crypto that, uh, that Facebook has, has launched versus one that's truly, you know, untraceable back to, to, your, to your identity. And uh, this, is the, this is the type of technology, especially in very politically unstable, you know, countries where that makes all the difference for an individual uh, who's on the, on the front lines. That's uh, very interesting. So where do you see the future of blockchain technology going? Or is it already so far into the future that there's not more future for it to take? Uh, and, and, and specifically, how do you see that tying back into nonprofit adoption and, and use cases? I think the key thing that people should realize is that 99% of the disruption that blockchain will bring is still to come. We are in the very, very early stages of this technology. You know, people talk about it. The phrase people like to use is it's like the internet in 1994. I think it's like the internet in 1990. You know, it's, it's, we're still so early. And so when we talk about all these use cases around verification and tracking and identity, a lot of them are just big ideas right now. But, you know, in a generation, these are going to be foundational elements. And so when you look, you know, from the nonprofit perspective, yeah, you could start with crypto donations, but start to look a little bit further down the road and say, okay, how do we operate? How can we implement blockchain now around perhaps our supply chain or our money movement or our impact tracking? But then think, you know, even further out, what's the 10x of how blockchain is going to impact not your nonprofit, but the entire industry that it works within? You know, are you as a nonprofit a centralized intermediary that is just preventing donors from giving money directly to, you know, the individual who needs it overseas? Or, you know, what is the value add that you provide that will ensure that you won't be disintermediated by blockchain itself? And so I think it's really about thinking about the bigger picture. What does the world look like, you know, 20, 30 years from now with more blockchain-based infrastructure? Are the problems that you're trying to solve going to be solved by that? Let's hope so. But then what does that mean for you? So um, this was, you know, this is a question that came up in the earlier days of blockchain. Uh, but do you believe it's it's the Internet 3.0? Uh, has it is it has it already become Internet 3.0? What are your, what are your thoughts around that? Absolutely, it's Web 3.0. It's really taking freedom and uh, taking power back into the hands of the people and enabling them to create a, an incredible world that is based on equity and and diversity and, and freedom of access. Awesome. 
Last question uh, for nonprofits who are like, all right, I move to take action. I'm going to start uh, getting more involved with blockchain and crypto. Uh, are there a few applications that come off the shelf for nonprofits that you would recommend that they use to get started? Or, or where should nonprofits get started if they want to raise their hand and say, I want to, I want to become more relevant. I want to start you know, down this path. What would you suggest? My number one piece of advice for any nonprofit employee is to go out and buy a dollar's worth of Bitcoin. Take it in evening, go learn how to do it. There's lots of instructions online. I've got a blog all about it. And it'll really help you understand how that works, what a donor might have to go through in order to buy Bitcoin, to send Bitcoin. And then you can watch your dollar go up and down, see the volatility and just kind of become a part of this community. And from there, you can move onwards to, you know, looking at the rest of the applications and how they might apply to you. Really, it's about just taking that, that first step, put your toe in the water and go out and get a little bit of Bitcoin. Great. Thank you so much, Anne, for taking time to spend with us today, educating our listeners on blockchain and crypto and um, how that uh, can play a pivotal role, not just today, but uh, in the next five to 10 years as organizations uh, look to scale and, and achieve even more impact. So very much appreciate you joining the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. I had a great time. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nonstop Nonprofit. This podcast is brought to you by your friends at Fundraise, nonprofit fundraising software built by nonprofit people. If you'd like to continue the conversation, find me on LinkedIn or text me at 562-242-8160. And don't forget to get your next episode the second it hits the internets. Go to nonstopnonprofitpodcast.com and sign up for email notifications today. See you next time.